Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, and average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day. So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today. This week on Put Your Socks On, we speak with basketball legend and avid cyclist Reggie Miller about the game, the bike, and how we all should be listening and using our voices to make the change we want to see not only in sport, but in our global community. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as I am every week, I am joined by Bobby Julik. How you doing, Bobby? I'm doing well, but uh, I'll admit I had a little bit of a crazy week with my oldest daughter, Olivia, graduating from high school, and I put graduating in in air quotes. It was actually pretty interesting how they did conduct the ceremony, uh, being you know respecting the social distancing stuff. Um, I'm so bummed for the class of 2020. They missed out on the last two and a half months of their high school career, and just a just a real a real bummer for them not to have those experiences like prom and and whatnot. Um, I don't know about you, but my best friends to this day are from high school. I graduated with these guys, and we still get together every year since we graduated in 1990. We still get together, and uh, we'll continue to do that as long as we possibly can. That's for sure. I mean, yeah, wives and friends have made it a little bit more difficult over the years, but we'll, we, we'll find a way. That being said, Gus, it has been brought to my attention by my big sister, Robin, that mm-hmm. in past episodes, when you ask me how I'm doing, I never ask you how you're doing. <laughs> I mean, so... So, I mean, what are big sisters for, right? I mean, they, they exactly. only tell you they only tell you what you're doing wrong instead of what you're doing right. But Gus, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm doing really well. It's funny you should say you're saying um, you've got a uh, strong you know, relationship with the guys that you, you graduated with. I was homeschooled for the last few years. So to be honest, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Um, I never got a graduation either, so it means nothing to me. But uh, I can empathize. Um, what I should say, though, was uh, I'm doing well. On the weekend, um, I headed out to Western Colorado uh, and the Utah desert to shoot and, and hang out with my brother who was attempting to set an FKT on the Cocopelli Trail, um, which he ended up doing, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it was really nice to get out and, uh, and witness someone really late on the line. Um, haven't seen that for a while, and so it was great to uh, to be a part of that. And man, in that setting, uh, I don't know if you've well, you probably have been out, you know, Fruta and and Loma beyond out to, towards Moab. It's unbelievable out there. Like you know, you can have the Tour de France any day. I uh, I am down with the uh, with the FKT attempts and the routes that they they seem to be um, well, the routes that are available to to have those on. So yeah, they got me hooked. Yeah, that's a beautiful part of the world. You know, that high desert right on the Colorado-Utah border, kind of like where I started riding bikes. And I just always enjoyed that. And we enjoyed that same sort of landscape when we were down in Tucson together. Yeah. I don't know. There's a there's a spiritual part of me that that does love that that high desert feel. 
and I can't imagine what your brother did. I don't think I, I'd want to go out and ride those roads. I wouldn't want to ride them for, you know, eight or nine hours or what, however long it took him to do that. Yeah, it was uh, it was rough in the car. So on the mountain bike, it was uh, it would have been rude. But there is um, there is also I just want to add about you know the 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 FKT or fastest known time attempts. It was great. It was like my dad was there. We had to share a bed in this like forty dollar a night hotel. You know, my bro, his wife. You know, he was like you know just got food from the gas station. Was eating his oats out of like a uh, a hotel kind of little um, stainless steel pot that, that was in the hotel room. We got up at 1.45 in the morning on the trail at 2.30. You know, it was like it, it took me back to, to to racing when, you know, you're in the junior junior ranks and it's you and, you know, the family out there. And there was something really, uh, really awesome about it. So he did set a time. Uh, it was a time of 11 hours and 14 minutes something. Oh, my God. Um, which, 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 which beat the record um, by over 40 minutes. Um, so yeah, he, he, he really put a dint in that record and at, at about the halfway mark, he actually smashed his, his rear wheel. So we had a crack. Um, the rear wheel was, you know, was moving, had separated. So he had to nurse a, a broken rear wheel, but despite that, you know, set a really good time. And he sort of said, uh, well, he did say he was, uh, he was, uh, having a good day out on the trail. Uh, I was like, no shit. Uh, he did a really, <laughs> really, really good ride. So that was, that was my weekend. And and I read that he had a little bit of problem with his bike light at the beginning. Let me let me guess. <laughs> yeah. w- were you in charge of charging the bike light and maybe just forgot? It slipped your mind a little bit. Was that was that your? No, job? I had I had absolutely nothing to do with his preparation, and I didn't have anything to do with the maps. And my dad and I got lost uh, at one point, which was my dad's department. So I don't even want to go into that. But it's funny you should mention that because um, before Lockie set off, I distinctly. He like really made a point of being like, oh man, this is great. I can just, he's like, I've got two lights. I can use them on high beam the whole time because in the Colorado Trail, he had he, he had a light that didn't quite work properly and so he had to use it on low beam and it was like a really difficult experience riding in the dark a lot of the time. And so he was like super excited about having the light. He didn't charge it properly. So about 20 minutes in, the front light went out. And he's just like, he didn't charge it. <laughs> Not great. <laughs> or, he, or he didn't charge it properly. So anyway, he only had his headlamp. And then his headlamp was low. And so we had to put that on like a low setting. And like, sounded like it was a bit of a shit show out there. But I, I must admit, if Lockie can thrive in any environment, it's when the odds are stacked against him <laughs> and just things are going wrong. And evidently he did. So yeah, no, that was, uh, that was a great experience. And, uh, you know, there'll be some, some, some cool stuff coming out of that in uh, the next few weeks. They also had the Dirty Cancelled set up by Lawrence Tendam, the Dirty Kansas Substitute, where these right. riders all around the world adhering to all social distancing and lockdown rules were to undertake a 320K route from their home region in honor of the postponed event. Uh, we saw Levi Leipheimer, uh, Vogt van Aert, uh, Peter Stetna, among others. I, I think there was 600 or so others taking part. What a... It just goes to show you what that event means to people and not right. having that everyone misses it. I think that was a great gesture and Lawrence Tadam, you're a you're a legend for setting that up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm loving the DIY uh, attempts as I've said, you know, each week as we see more and more of them. Emmanuel Bachman went out and absolutely smoked the Everesting record in his home country before being DQ'd on a technicality. He uh, you're supposed to repeat the same climb. And I believe he climbed up and then over and then repeated the backside uh, of the climb. So, you know, I hope he has another crack. Um, it feels like Everesting is kind of filling that void that the hour record created a few years ago, that hype when everyone was just having a crack at it. Um, and then Victor Kampenjertz went out and set a staggering 55 kilometers an hour. And everyone's like, yeah, not not going to bother with that for a, for a, for a few years. Um, so it's kind of got me wondering uh, who's going to set the unobtainable record in the Everesting realm, uh, and hopefully we'll see see that before racing resumes. Yeah, I had a I had a mate uh, that did the Everesting challenge on Zwift, so he went up and down Alp de Zwift eight and a half times, and he had a goal set of ten hours, and he smashed it. He did it in I think nine twenty two or something like Shit. that. And I was able to go in there in the view mode and actually follow him and send him messages. And it was, it was neat. I mean, I, I like this Everstein idea. Mm. 
I just don't see myself doing that personally. Oh, absolutely not. For me, it's like like for me, it's like watching a horror film as opposed to like being in the horror film. It's like an and 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 everything on Zwift is like a nightmare within a nightmare for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like some inception right and, there. And talking about another Everstein record being broken, just hot off the press, Lauren, and I'm going to mess this up, Crienzo, I hope Eddie, our, our sound guy, can edit that out a little bit, but Lauren is a, a former pro who now works as a research assistant at CDC. She used the effort to raise funds for the Craig Hospital, where she received surgery for a TBI four years ago. So, man, this this thing is just falling. And like you said earlier, like, I wonder when it's going to be put out of reach. But, you know, when more and more people get into it, more and more people get prepared. And, you know, going back to poor Emmanuel Bokman, everybody that's considering doing an Everstein, especially an outside Everstein, needs to read all the rules and be totally <laughs> right. prepared. Because could you imagine spending 10 hours on a bike, nine hours, nine hours on a bike, and then not have it be registered as, uh, as a, an official Everstein segment? Man, that would be tough. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be tough. And and Lauren broke that time by about four minutes. So the first woman to go under ten hours, which is uh which is exceptional. We were that talking about that last week. Yeah, we were too. Exactly right. Yeah. Remember, Katie like Hall. somebody's gotta um, go under ten. Now somebody's gotta go over under nine fifty. There you go. You the know. difference a week makes. The difference yep. a week makes. And that rings very true on a number of fronts this week. And today we sat down with our guest who made his name on the hallowed courts of the NBA. Reggie Miller's name transcends sport, and as a fan or not, if you've ever taken a minute to watch him on the basketball court, you'll know you're witnessing one of a one-of-a-kind genius at work. For me, as someone who hasn't grown up with professional basketball nor followed it, you know, particularly closely in adulthood, I've become increasingly enthralled with the sport, and even more so with its characters during the lockdown period. I think I speak for a lot of people um, when when it comes to that and, you know, the Last Dance documentary. A game that can, you know, a game that can turn in split seconds um, and, you know, obviously Reggie can attest to that better than most. There are some very strange similarities um, as well as really vast differences to the sport of professional cycling and, and that's what I was most excited to sit down with Reggie and ask him about and you know that as well as what he sort of sees the role of sport in today's society and and how he thinks you know sport can kind of lead the way and set an example for for the rest of the world yeah after we spoke with TJ von Garderen last last week and he gave us the the lead out of the century I am so stoked to have NBA legend Reggie Miller on the show today I have to admit uh, I'm kind of fanboying here a little bit I got a little underarm sweat going you know I would I was terrible at basketball, but I grew up watching and loving 90s basketball, and Reggie was a part, a huge part of that amazing decade. It just seemed like guys were tougher back then, and they were more loyal to their teams, and they fought, and there was none of these ticky-tack fouls that decide games like it seems like there is is now. But, um, you know, growing up in Colorado, uh, the Denver Nuggets weren't very good, weren't very good at all. <laughs> But for some reason, the Chicago Bulls games, all of them were shown live on TNT. So obviously, I became a fan of them. I became a fan of Michael Jordan. But through the Bulls' amazing runs for those titles, there was always those players that stood out. And Reggie Miller was definitely one of them. I just liked his style. But I admit that that trash-talking style where, man... You say the wrong thing and he's going to embarrass you was part of the reason why I stopped playing basketball with my friends because there was, like I said, I wasn't very good at it. And there was a couple of those guys that could just absolutely embarrass you. It must have been hard for him personally playing for the Indiana Pacers for 18 years with Michael Jordan and the Bulls being about, what, two, three hour drive from from them. And watching them win so so many titles, like it's kind of like the grass is greener on that side of the fence. Like, I wonder if there was ever that, hey, you know, I want to win a title, maybe I can go there. But obviously, he and Michael were were um, opposite ends of a magnet, to say the least. But uh, his run-ins with Jordan, John Stark, even Spike Lee defined his career and a generation. He was a true baller. 
and loved having the ball in his hands during crunch time when the game was on the line. But all that aside, finding out that he was a very serious and passionate cyclist put him on a whole other level for me. And thanks again to TJ Van Garderen for for setting this all up. How cool is this going to be having Reggie Miller on our show? Mate, this is uh, very exciting. And, you know, as I as I said before, as someone who's only recently become uh, enthralled with the game, I had absolutely no idea that he was a, a an avid cyclist and a really good one, by the way. And I was a fan, you know, I was a fan. And then and then when when TJ mentioned that, I was kind of like, oh, you know, dots connect. Um, so, yeah. This is a fantastic and and wide-ranging interview and and yeah we really hope everyone enjoys. Here's Miller for 3. Reggie Miller getting the roll. Putting the move on Starks. Reggie Miller. Beautiful shot on a fadeaway jumper. Miller for 3. And he got it. Reggie Miller with a clutch tray and it's 105-102. And a steal. Miller retreats to the three-point line and hits again. Miller has hit 12 of 13 in the game. One of the greatest clutch playoff performers of his generation has apparently done it again. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. McKee gets it in the middle for the win. With too much adrenaline flowing through your body. That's what you say. I love this game. That's what it's really all about right there. Such an honor to have living legend Reggie Miller on the show today. Welcome to Put Your Socks On, Reggie. How you guys doing? First of all, I'm honored to be on this. Um, I've heard a lot about Put Your Socks On. So I'm nervous about some of the questions that are going to be coming this way, but uh, let's have some fun. You know, our show is very much tethered to the world of cycling, but I'm just a huge sports fan, period. And after TJ Van Garderen gave us such a great lead out last week in (laughs) connecting with you, we just had to have you on the show. So thank you so much for for taking time to speak with us, knuckleheads. Uh, But are you cool with doing like half basketball and half cycling because, man, we can do I all got- cycling. I talk enough basketball for my day job. <laughs> we can do all cycling. <laughs> oh man, come on! We we gotta get a, we gotta right? get a couple things in I, I, there. Hey, Bobby, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, the NBA is not playing, so we don't. There's nothing to talk about in basketball, <laughs> dude. It's exactly the same in cycling. Like each week, yeah. where we we're, we're like, well, now what? You know, like you know, it's like we've kind of covered COVID. And we've yeah. kind of covered like, you know, like how things are going to change and, and whatnot. But um, now it's like, well, okay, let's just get going again because there's, yeah, sort of running out of things to talk about. My buddies from high school will kill me if we don't talk a little bit about basketball. Sure. I mean, especially with, you know, the Michael Jordan doc that came out and you're 30 for 30. So, uh, hey, the shot clock is on. Let, let, let's let uh, let's get rolling, Gus. Sure. What do you think? Well, exactly right. And look, I think... You know, this pertains um, to you now as a as a as a you know avid bike rider, but also as a as as, a, as an athlete, right? I wouldn't mind knowing. Like, let's let's start from the beginning. How did you start playing? But like, how did you get into basketball? And were there any other sports that you were into before then or around the same time? And sort of, I just want to kind of find how you 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 managed to to funnel into to the sport of basketball. My first love, and probably deep down in my gut, will always be baseball. I, I wanted to be the next Rod Carew. So baseball, now you got to remember, I know what you see now, I'm six seven, but back when I was, you know, playing Little League, I was a little small, skinny, you know, runt. So baseball was my first love. I was a great pitcher in Little League. So once I started to grow and go to high school, the head baseball coach at Riverside Poly, you know, he had saw me in Little League and was like, well, I'm going to make you a pitcher. And I don't know if you know, the mound in Little League versus the mound in Pony League in high school is totally different. It's a little bit further. So I didn't have that same speed and that same velocity as a pitcher. And I was like, no, I'm going to be playing center field. He's like, no, you're going to be a pitcher. I'm like, no, I'm going to be playing center field. (laughs) So he almost kind of helped my decision along to play basketball because I had played, obviously, you know, 
was my sister and my two older brothers, but baseball was my passion. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just start dribbling a little bit more. And from my freshman year, that's when I concentrated solely on basketball. But when I entered high school, I was only 5'9", but I grew two inches every summer. So by the time I finished high school, I was about 6'4", 6'5". And then when I went to UCLA, uh, I grew a couple more inches to round up at (laughs) 6'7". And you wore number 31. I'm a numbers guy. I like numbers. Me too. And you wore 31 in college at UCLA, like you just mentioned, and in the pros. Yes. Both teams have since retired your jersey. Is there a story, some backstory about how you picked number 31? People assume that 13 is the unlucky number. So I just flipped it and made it 31. You know, people assume 13 is the unlucky number and A lot of people don't like to wear 13. I was like, well, let's go with 31. And it just stuck. Just stuck. I like the logic. Makes total sense, (laughs) right? 31's got to be lucky. Makes total sense, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But I I saw your 30 for 30 special and recently, you know, The Last Dance, and it brought back so many memories of 90s basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a legend of the sport, a Hall of Famer, Olympic gold medalist, and one of the best shooters of all time. You played 18 seasons over, gosh, what, over 1,300 games for the same team. We don't see that much anymore. I'm very lucky, very fortunate to have played my whole career with Indiana. Yeah, you just don't, you don't see that anymore. You know, the the loyalties are just much different. But, But with that 18 seasons and that many games, what did you guys do back then to stay in good enough shape to absorb that physical workload as well as the abuse, you know, in the Eastern Conference. I mean, you guys played hard. Well, certainly, Bobby, was the game has kind of changed a little bit. If you look at the game now, it's not as physical as it was in the late 80s and the 90s. You could actually put your hands on, you know, your defender or the offensive guy and kind of direct them a little bit. Again, being 6'7", and when I was drafted in 1987, I was only 175, 180, but I felt that I could run like a deer, like a gazelle. I was always in motion. And my whole mantra was, you can't defend what you can't catch. So I felt (laughs) I was always in motion, always running. They couldn't clinch me because I wasn't the biggest guy. You know, Michael was strong, physical, tough. So if I kept it a track meet, number one, I'm going to wear him down. Well, try and wear him down, but he couldn't hold on and direct me where he wanted me to go. I also ran a little bit of track in high school. That was another sport I kind of loved to do, but it was, you know, not the 100 and the 200. I like running the miles and the eight miles and things like that. So I was more of an endurance type runner. So that that's kind of helped, which once we do get to, the cycling portion of what we're talking about, that's kind of what has led me into endurance cycling as well is because that has always been my passion. It's not what you do the first three quarters of a basketball game. It's what goes on in the fourth quarter. Are you just as strong in the fourth quarter as you were in the first quarter? So conditioning was huge for me, weight room training, as well as just conditioning the mind and the heart. You said something too interesting interesting there which like so I'm not I'm Australian I didn't really grow up um following well I didn't follow um basketball at all and it's really only in the in the lockdown um I started watching the the horse the guys playing horse oh um, yeah and I was yeah. like I, you know I thought that was like a creative <laughs> way of kind of engaging it sort of what it opened me up to right was this whole other side of trash talking of you know like getting in each other's heads and we have cricket in Australia and that's a big part of of cricket right and uh, but it also sort of highlighted there are some kind of odd similarities between the sport of cycling. Um, you just sort of mentioned, right, the last quarter, you know, same in, in bike riding. You've got to get to the end of the race in order to be a part of it. Um, but before we get there, um, you know, you've been called the master showman, trash talker, <laughs> Uncle Reg. Um, <laughs> and at, at that top level of the sport, I'm sort of, I mean, you, you seem to embrace the ability to get inside people's heads, right? I'm really intrigued. What percent of the sport's mental and how are you kind of working that in and around the physical um, when that comes to different players, you know, different teams, that sort of stuff? It's funny and great question because if, if you make it to any professional league or if you make it, you know, to the Tour de France, 
NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, all of those players physically have the talent to be there or they wouldn't have been there. But what makes a good player versus a great player to me has always been their mental aspect and how they approach things. What made Larry Bird, what made Magic Johnson, uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, they've got all the physical skills, which we see on the floor, but mentally the guys I just mentioned are so much stronger than just the good players in the game. Uh, they know how to dig deeper and being on the bike, playing basketball has helped in terms of, because on the bike, there's at times I've had to go to dark places, you know, when you're, and you don't know how to navigate that. If you've never gone to a dark place, when you're doing suicides in basketball or 18s or, you know, that last 10 miles of a 100-mile bike race, if you don't know how to navigate that and you've never, ever been there, you'll be a good basketball player. You'll be a good cyclist. The great cyclists know how to play tricks, how to, how to talk their way out of it, how to manipulate their body and make it think that it's doing something that it's not supposed to be doing. Those are the great cyclists. Those are the great NBA players, the great Major League Baseball players, the great footballers. Those are the Tom Brady's, the Joe Montana's. They know how to trick themselves and trick you into thinking that they're not tired. Hey, Bobby, I have a question for you on that, actually. Like, I think the world knows, right? Like, Armstrong, you know, was a big mind games player. But who else, when you were, you know, at that top level in the in the Tour de France was playing mind games or who was like really tactically astute? I would say before my day, Bernard Hinault, I went back and watched a lot of of his races and he seemed to be that kind of bully character as well. But then there's there's just so many guys that are great tacticians, but they didn't uh, flaunt it the way that, that Lance did. They were just as mentally strong, but, you know, they're strong. And I think you'll agree, Reggie, you know, there's strong guys and then there's the strongest. Yeah. And, you know, I just happened to encounter a guy named Lance Armstrong. You just happened to encounter a guy like Michael Jordan. Jordan. Mm-hmm. And and it just it's just a totally different level. You can't explain it. They're just these anomalies of nature. But um, it's funny you say that because being part of the last dance and watching the Lance doc and listening to Lance and how he talked to you guys his teammates and to the opponents and listening to MJ and now hearing, you know, how, you know, Scotty Pippen's a little upset at him, Will Purdue and Horace Grant, and then how he, you know, trash talked basically all his competitor, Gary Payton, uh, Dan Marley. It, it's very much the same thing, but that is what makes them great. And I was telling uh, a Dan Patrick when I was on his show, MJ should never have to apologize because that's part of his deal. Lance should never have to apologize for wanting to be great and wanting other people to be great, right? That's part of their DNA, and that's what has made them great. And that's what I think. I, I, I drew the, the, simil- the same similarity, right? Like watching those two series back to back. And then, you know, and then you realize like, I mean, there might be conflict afterwards or these people kind of rethinking, but like at that time, if you want to be the best, like right. you've got to be uncompromising, um, which, is, which is a in. fascinating insight. Exactly. You got to be all in and win at all costs. We, how many times did we hear Michael Jordan say that? I was going to win by at all costs. And you kind of hear Lance saying the same thing, you know, win at all costs. Now, there was lines crossed by Lance. We all know, but... His mentality was, I want the top spot. I want the top podium, right? I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah. I mean, um, did you watch the the Lance doc by any chance? I watched part one. Don't give away part two because I I have it on my recorder. So don't. I'm going to watch it tonight, Bobby. So don't give away anything. (laughs) I didn't watch part one. But... But man, Reggie, I mean, it's just so awesome that you're on our show right after The Last Dance and right after The Lance Doc, because I really drew some parallels between you and I. Obviously, I had to grow up from a very young age with the goat of cycling. 
and you had to deal with the goat of basketball that right. lived two and a half hours from you. Yeah. And I saw this guy at every single race. But I don't think it was easy on on either of us. But would you have wanted it any other way? No. Would you have wanted But Bobby, didn't it make you go back to the lab and work harder though? It was frustrating in the in the middle of it because MJ and I, we were in the same division, Chicago, Indiana, Central Division, the same conference, the Eastern Conference. So we butted head a lot, as you saw in the doc, the fighting, the trash talking, it was on full display. The respect was there, but when you're going against, and in the time, you don't want, look, when you were racing Lance, you weren't calling him the GOAT while you were racing him. While I was playing MJ, I'm not calling him the GOAT. I want to beat the hell out of him, right? I'm trying to, I want what he had. Now, when 15, 20 years later and I'm on this side and I get a chance, of course you look back at the history. I mean, it's like going against Babe Ruth. The, when, you, when people say you went against the greatest player of all time, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, we took a – I had a – very sliver of success against him. Very small. I will live with that. He's got the six rings. I have zero. But it was the battles that I will always remember going against him. And I know, look, as long as he respected me at the end of the day, which I hope, knock on wood, you would assume he did. Um, and just like you, you would assume that Lance respected you at the end of the day. You would hope that. Yeah, uh, definitely. But, you know, both you and I were kind of, what, what how do you put it, reluctantly involved in those um, documentaries, right? I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it at first. I was like, I'm not going to, because it was painful for me personally yeah. to do that doc because, you know, it, when watching that, and I said this, I really felt we were the better team that year in 98. I really did. I thought that was our chance. And when I said on air, oh, my God, because I knew that was the Bulls' last run, and I'm saying to myself, and this is my ego speaking, all right, I'm going to retire Michael Jordan. That's how I was thinking in 98 with my 11 other guys. We're getting ready to go to war. Yeah, we're going to retire Michael Jordan. That should be my thinking. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I want to – you said something interesting then um, about how, like, you know, now on this side of – of your career looking back you were you know part of like what was a a really historical period in the game I do uh and then you also said something really interesting about being all in like I'm intrigued uh you know you 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 decide not to come out of retirement in 07 um and you've been commentating on the sport uh for a long time I want to know like do you have is there still a competitive itch you know, in basketball, in, in bike riding, um, do you still have, do you sometimes still just want to get out there or, or you know, get amongst it? it? I only get the itch for basketball come playoff time. During the regular season, when you're, you know, you play in one city and you're off to the next, the travel, the wear and tear, no. Come April 15th, if it was a regular calendar year, because that's tax time, that's when the playoffs are getting ready to start. That's the only time I get the itch because that's when the intensity is the highest, the best competition. So the playoffs, it's the best of seven series. And you're going against a team, and they're going to take away your first three or four best moves. They're going to take away what you do best. How can you create and be better? That's what I miss is the playoffs and that two-month journey hopefully that gets you to, you know, the beginning of June in the NBA finals. But regular, I mean, I still shoot. I shoot with my son who's getting ready to turn seven just to have fun. But I don't miss the grind of the regular season and the travel and the buses. I miss the camaraderie of the guys. You always miss that. You miss that team atmosphere. But the grind, I don't miss at all. Well, hey, listen, you know, we know we're on a shot clock here and the buzzer sounded and it's halftime. So let's switch gears. You like what I did there? Switch gears I did. I like and, 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 and talk about something that we know a little bit more about, because I have a list of questions. But man, what you were just saying there was so much better than the questions I had. So let's talk about cycling. I'm curious 
how did you get introduced to cycling and what captivated you about it? I mean, you're a six foot seven ex NBA player. How does, how do you even find a bike that fits you? It's been a journey, trust me. Uh, and I'm still on that journey. Now, maybe questions will be answered on this uh, show. In 2000, I was getting ready to move. I was going through a divorce, sold my house in Hollywood Hills, and I wanted a fresh start. So I told my business manager to find me or go find me a spot in Malibu. I'd never been to Malibu, even though I'm from the LA area. I didn't frequent Malibu, but I heard a lot about it, that it was beautiful, nice. So I just needed to change. She found a place, great. Um, I was still playing at the time. So that summer, as I was coming to go to the house for the very first time, I stopped at a restaurant in Malibu to eat. Tim Comerfield, who is the bassist guitarist for the uh, group Rage Against the Machine, was at the uh, restaurant. And he came up to me, and he's a big you know, sports fan, and introduced himself, welcome to Malibu. Uh, me and a couple buddies, you know, we're going to be going uh, biking, mountain biking later. You know, you should join us. And I had never mountain biked before, ever. Um, didn't own a bike. And he's like, you can use one of my bikes. And I'm like, okay. Well, the other two guys, it turned out to be Don Wildman, who was the owner at the time of the 24-hour fitness gyms, and Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer. And those three guys took me out on my first mountain bike ride in beautiful Malibu. And I'm telling you, they destroyed me. They killed me. And I was still in basketball NBA shape. And I wasn't clipped in, though. It was a heavy, giant bike. And Tim is about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, so I was riding his bike. and But I fell in love with the trails and being getting lost in the middle of nowhere. That got me hooked, even though I was still playing. I didn't really get the itch, you know, to where I am at today until I retired because I was still playing. I still had responsibilities. So that's how I was introduced to biking in particular, because I consider myself a mountain biker. I just ride a lot of road to, to get better. That's the only way you get better in mountain biking. You've got to get on the road. You've got to go on longer rides and you've got to do intervals. You got to do all that on the road but I'm a mountain biker per se. So that's how I fell in love with biking. And what was the time frame of that again? You in said you were still playing. In 2000, in two, wow. when I was introduced to biking, because I, I had a bike growing up, but you know, sure. we all had Schwinn's growing up. But it was, you know, I would just rode my bike, you know, around the neighborhood. But being on a trail and actually doing something, that was my first ride ever in 2000, 2001. And then... Fast forward when I retired in 05, 06 and started working for Turner, I was like, well, I need to stay in shape to look good in my suits. I don't want to run. I don't want to play anymore. So that's when I started to uh, mountain bike more. And so my first bike was a giant mountain bike, 26 wheels. It was too small for me. The bike shop knew that. Um, I ended up getting a custom bike from Moots. They built a bike up. They're from uh, Colorado, Steamboat. I believe. Yeah, Steamboat, Steamboat, Colorado. So I had that bike for about, that mountain bike for about six years and it served me great. And I've made so many relationships through social media on Instagram. And a guy suggested that I go towards the Santa Cruz line because they build bigger bikes. And so my first, I call official real, real mountain bike was a Santa Cruz Tallboy XXL. And that's the bike I started to race in, even though it was a trail bike. It wasn't an XC bike, but I didn't know the difference. I was just out there grinding away. <laughs> but um, it's funny, Gus, because you talked about uh, the emotion and basketball and all that. Well, when I first lined up for my first race in mountain biking, those butterflies, that adrenaline, it all came back. And that's why I'm in love with cycling because the butterflies I had right before jump ball when everyone's around the circle and you're getting ready to play, or when you're lined up and the tape is in front of you and they start to count down, um, those butterflies have come back. It is, you know, a lot of people like to golf in retirement or do whatever, my passion is cycling, mountain biking. 
that has fueled what was lost when I retired in basketball. And that's like sort of leads right into my next question, right? Like you race, you know, you're racing a bit nowadays. You were talking earlier about, you know, you're doing like long distance sort of um, stuff. I'm intrigued to hear like, are there any similarities between competition in in basketball and, and riding, but also too like, what else are you getting from cycling now that you weren't necessarily from from uh, from from basketball and 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 yeah, what's that kind of challenge? How's that challenging you? I would say the camaraderie. Now, you know, I started my own thanks to Castelli, the Boom Baby, you know, brand, the kits that we wear. The very first race at mountain bike. The reason why I did it. A guy hit me on Instagram and said, hey, we should do a race together. You do a lap, I do a lap. And it was a six-hour race. And I'm like, I've never raced before. What do I wear? What do I bring? What do I, I mean, I didn't know. And he's like, I'll, you know, I'll give you all the information. And that's when I got introduced to racing and being around, it was the Red Zone team. And he had like five or six guys. And those guys have now been part of Boom Baby. And they've been with me ever since. And that was like in 2010, 2011. And just being around the guys in the atmosphere, there's no trash talking, I would say, in cycling. At least I have not. It's more, to me, I equate it to kind of like golf. It's more gentleman-ish. Though guys do get pissed off when you cut off their line, which I respect. I understand that. But there's been more of a helping hand in cycling and mountain biking than there has been in basketball. Basketball, you're trying to stomp on their throat and do whatever it takes to win. You know, we keep saying that. In cycling, again, now I'm only in cat two. I'm sure the pro level, I'm sure in the pro level, there's a little bit more cutthroat. But for what I'm doing, you know, I'm this close to getting to cat one. That's my ultimate goal is to race cat one. So, yeah, it's uh, – the camaraderie with those guys, with the with the Boom Baby guys and the Red Zone guys, it's great. The Boom Baby is that the name of your team, or yes. is because the, TJ mentioned that you also uh, have a charity called Dropping Dimes. Is that right? So the Dropping Dimes uh, charity, it for those of you who are old enough to remember, there was two leagues that started in the '60s and '70s. The NBA, which is currently National Basketball Association. And the ABA, they're the, the American Basketball Association. They're the league that started off the three-point line and the red-white. They played with the red-white blue ball. Well, they were only in existence seven or eight years, and then the NBA bought them out. Those players had nowhere to go. The top ones did, like Dr. J, you've all heard of him, George Gervin, Dan Issel. Those great players were able to merge with the NBA. A lot of those players that were in the ABA, they fell on hard times. There was no health um, insurance. Uh, They didn't have any union. So the Dropping Dimes Foundation helps those men who play in the ABA. The Boom Baby jerseys from Castelli that we do a fundraiser once a year, all the proceeds goes towards those gentlemen who are now in their 70s and 80s who just need a coat to go on a job interview, who need dental work, who need family housing assistance. So all the jerseys from the fundraiser and the name Boom Baby comes from Slick Leonard, who was the head coach of the Indiana Pacers ABA team. uh, The Indiana Pacers were ABA and NBA, and they won three championships led by Slick Leonard. Well, when he was commentating my games for the Indiana Pacers in the NBA, his big catchphrase every time I made a three was boom, baby. So I took that, went to Castelli, they jumped on board and that's where the boom, baby love has come from. So I want to ask a question, right? Like, um, you know, you give back to sport. You just explained through that boom, baby, uh, sorry, through the uh, dropping dimes organization. I'm intrigued, right? 2020, the world's flipped on its head. Um, You know, everything that's going on right now, I'm really intrigued to hear um, what role you see sport playing in society and and is there a place for sport, for athletes to kind of lead the way? I feel like basketball is very much on the front, the forefront of this sort of a movement. I'm I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on that. 
Absolutely. And I think sports in general, and especially the NBA has always had a huge platform in terms of healing. But I think a lot of people are frustrated right now because obviously, you know, COVID and the coronavirus has stopped everything. So there's no outlets for people. Sports used to be the great, you know, equalizer in healing form. You know, after 9-11, it was baseball. You know, you remember George Bush going to Yankee Stadium and throwing out the first ball. You know, we won't be defeated. You know, people had that outlet to go to a sporting event and escape life. Well, the world has shut down. There's no movies. There's no theater life. There's no sports. There's no mall. Everyone has been home, at home watching TV. So when you see, and, and I'm going to say this, when you see a murder on TV of George Floyd, and this has been going on forever, and people are frustrated. They're tired. They're hurt. And you keep telling people to turn the other cheek and to have peaceful protest and change never comes about. They are tired. So what, you know, we saw Colin Kaepernick take a knee, a peaceful protest to what has been going on. And he gets blackballed from the NFL from that. And I see all these images now of police and other people kneeling. It's funny how things have come full circle because the murder of George Floyd and this officer kneeling on him forcibly for over eight minutes, lynching this man on national TV for the world to see. And you've got Colin Kaepernick who's been telling you guys, this has been going on forever. That's how sports and its brightest stars can help heal the pain, hopefully. But it starts from within. People need to start listening. And when I say people, white people need to start listening to the pain of black and brown people in this country and and in the world. Because it's been going on way too long. We've had two, you know, a young man goes out for a jog, for a jog and gets murdered for that. You know, it's got to stop. So the looting and the rioting, which, you know, it's funny how the media likes to highlight the looting and not the peaceful protests that are going mm-hmm. around, you know, this nation. Sometimes you've got to take an, an aggressive approach to create change. They want change. And it starts with people getting off their butt, too, and getting to the polls and voting. You don't like a prosecutor. You don't like a president. You don't like an attorney general. You don't like a judge. Vote them out. Go Vote, people. Get them out. Right. And is that, that's, I mean, everything you said there, I feel like that's exactly right. We were speaking months and months ago um, with uh, the head of the, the World's Players Association. And and I asked him, like, essentially about uh, what's the change, uh, what, what what sort of change can athlete, athletes make? And, and he, he made a point of Colin Kaepernick and how what he was doing was groundbreaking, but like, you know, that change wasn't happening. Um, right. and, and it was, and, and I guess, I mean, you summed it up really well there, right? It's come full circle and now it's, it's led to this, this shift with this shift happening. What do you see? Do you, do you see a change happening? And, and how do you see, I guess, athletes in that now leading, you know, after, the, after everything dies down, how can athletes stand up and, and how can then people that ride bikes that, you know, do this stuff for fun, how can they kind of and act on that change and, and follow in follow with, with positive, uh, I guess, action. The more times you hear the voices of uh, a LeBron James, you heard Michael Jordan's comments come out and saying this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. The more of our, you know, black and brown leaders in the sports community say enough is enough, hopefully enough people. And, you know, again, the owners of these teams have to start listening. You're making a lot of money off of these athletes. They've got to start listening. You've got to listen to not only your fan base, but you got to listen to the people that are make, putting money in your pocket. So whether it's group rides, charity rides, again, people got to get up and vote 
and you've got to let your voices be heard. Bottom line, you've got to let your voices be heard. Man, I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, that was just so amazingly well put. And, you know, we didn't really think we were going to go in that direction with this podcast, but I'm, I'm honored to have you on here and, and, and say the things that you just said, because things do have to change. And what you said encapsulates that whole thing for, for me. So I'm going to shut up now because there's just no words that I could even well, come close I, to saying that are close to what no, you just I shared mean, with says, us. It's these kind of conversations that are uncomfortable, but they are worth having. If it's uncomfortable, it's worth having. Here's the problem. People don't want to have these conversations because they don't want to believe that racism in 2020 exists. I mean, in the 90s, to me, it was the Rodney King beating and the, the riots that ensued mm. after that in Los Angeles. I mean, that was in the early 90s, right? We There was, I'm sure... Slavery, this goes back 400 years. I mean, I don't want to go on a history lesson here because this is a basketball and cycling show. But as long as people are willing to have a conversation and admit that racism is alive and well in America and what can we do, black and brown people and white people, how can we help one another get past this? If they're willing to have that conversation, that's the only way the healing is going to start. But if you're going to sit in your nice house and turn the channel and think it's, we're not going to go anywhere. It's nothing, no change will ever evolve from that. So if you're willing to listen and open up and say, you know what? You're right. Sometimes God gave us two ears. What now? Two ears. Listen. Put your listening ears on. The 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 fear of being uncomfortable nowadays and, and the ability to just be supported by people that share your beliefs um, is, you know, not not constructive in not helping it uh, you know, anyone uh, in terms of, of coming together. Uh, mate, appreciate your time today. Uh, Thank really, you guys. really lovely I, to I talk really to you. I really do appreciate this. Thank you guys for having me. Dude, it would be great it's to get out a- and have a uh, have a spin with you one day. Well, look, I, it would be great, but if it's the same spin that TJ took me on, because it's funny, <laughs> no it's funny because I, I want to tell the story before we go. Yeah, you know, yeah. so TJ goes, hey, let's go out on a ride, and I never, I, we fought, talk on email and, and texting, but I've never ridden with him, and he was in Malibu, this is three or four years ago, two or, two or three years ago, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to ride with TJ, okay, great. And um, I was like, okay, cool. You know, I'll show him around Malibu, the hills. And I'm sure he knew about all this. But I equate this to me in my 20s, if a good, if a good or even decent high school player said he wanted to play one-on-one or shoot with me, I'd be like, okay, you know, we could do this. You know, I, I would probably go through the motion. I wouldn't really break a sweat. Um, I would, you know, I would instruct <laughs> along the way, but it wouldn't mean anything. So I show up and I'm riding with him and he, he's always a half a millimeter behind me the whole way. Right. And I'm huffing and puffing going up these hills and he's just talking away. And I'm like, how is he talking and climbing <laughs> and staying with me? And I'm about ready to die here. That's the difference between a pro and the great versus an amateur and just good. So I will gladly ride with you guys, but you got to handicap me a little bit. Your first mistake is that you rode with a current pro. So we're retired. Mistake number one. We, we, we stop and smell the roses, man. Like taking pictures, hanging out, you know. Gus is probably doing like some Instagram story in the middle of the ride. You know, <laughs> how no, do you guys do that? I I I do not see how these guys can do this when riding. I ride with George Hincapie quite a bit, and he takes his phone out and does does work when yeah. we're riding. And I'm like, come on, man, like just just <laughs> give me a little bit of a break here. But no, we would love to ride with you. And I tell you, have you ever tried? I mean, you're in the dirt already. Have you at all been? 
curious about the gravel scene? People are trying to push me towards that way um, because <laughs> they say the more disciplines you can go through, it will eventually make you a better mountain biker. So they say, you know, if you can do gravel rides and gravel races, but I'm a little intimidated by that because I've, I've watched them. And when those guys go into those sand pit, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, they're like in quicksand and they're still getting ready to get, I don't know if I can do that. And watching uh, Matthew Vanderpool, am I saying it right? Matthew Vanderpool. I'm impressed. Oh no, no. I, look, I'm all in on cycling. So when I watched Matthew, because obviously him and Nino, you know, when they right. go head to head in mountain biking, that's what I want because Matthew's the future, but mm. Nino's the old guard. So just like Julian was the old guard when a young Nino was coming up. So it's, you know, circle of life. It's, you know, it all changes. So when I saw Matthew and he's the 20 time, you know, cyclocloth winner and I'm watching him, I'm like, I can't do that. So I can't do that. But I know it would make me a better mountain biker. So Bobby, I may I may do a race just to a small race, you know. Yeah. Not even a race. You know, we we did some really cool gravel events that it's really more of a get together, like you said, that social mm-hmm. ride that we and man, it was so much fun because that's one thing I don't like the competitive side of it anymore. Mm-hmm. But getting out there with people, enjoying that moment together we did one down in um on the mexico uh arizona border in uh patagonia it last last november it was one of the best experiences i've ever had Mm. so we'll have to get together reggie man thank you so much for your time you've been amazing thank you absolutely amazing this is awesome i appreciate it i appreciate (laughs) the love thank you guys continue please be safe during all this and uh you guys are really doing great things and bringing light to a number of uh, different, you know, this is just not cycling. It's just not basketball. But today we talked about life, everyday things that people are going through. And I applaud that. Thank you guys, number one, for listening. So thank you. Thanks, Reggie. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. (laughs) Well, everyone, that's it. That's all we have time for this week. Hope you enjoyed this amazing episode. And thanks again to Reggie Miller for graciously sharing his time with us. You can find our older shows as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcasts may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. This show was produced and edited by Eddie Rogers. It was produced by myself and Bobby Julik. Big thank you to TJ Van Garderen for linking us in with the man himself, Reggie Miller. Get at us on social media, Pod on Twitter. That's P-Y-S-O-P-O-D. At that is Gus and at Bobby.Julik on Instagram. Uh, reach out to us there. Give us any feedback, suggestions. You know, just pop in for a chat. And that's it. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our listeners. Stay safe, stay sane, and as always, don't forget to put your socks on. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. 
the app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, and average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day. So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better recover faster and train smarter optimize your performance with whoop today